As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey everyone, I'm Ray Bella, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you value this podcast as a free educational resource, you can support the show by making a monthly donation at patreon.com slash words for granted. Thanks to Keegan, Alex, Cassie, Andro, and Ronan for their recent contributions. I've been posting one bonus episode per month on Patreon these days, and the latest patrons-only episode will explore the idiomatic phrases to go berserk and to go postal. I haven't finished it yet, but it'll be up there soon. If Patreon's not your thing, but you still want to support the podcast, you can make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash words for granted. All right, let's get on to today's episode. Usually, I release the episodes of this show according to themes, but today's episode is a one-off story inspired by a passing factoid I read in Gaston Doran's book, Babel. If you've never heard of Babel, it's a great book, a classic in the blockbuster chart-topping genre of pop linguistics, and basically, each of its 20 chapters is dedicated to a narrative-driven overview of the 20 most spoken languages in the world. Anyway, The ninth chapter of the book covers the Malay language, and at the outset of the chapter, Doran provides a list of a few Malay loanwords that have made their way into English. These loans are mostly words for foods and animals native to the regions of Southeast Asia where Malay is spoken. Orangutan, cockatoo, paddy, satay, and pangolin are all English words directly borrowed from Malay. This is unsurprising. English speakers first came into contact with Malay and mass during Britain's colonial rule over the Malay Peninsula during the mid-19th century. As the colonial power, the direction of word borrowings between the two languages mostly moved in a unilaterally top-down direction from English to Malay, not the other way around. The kinds of words that English did borrow from Malay are words that it couldn't possibly have come up with on its own. For example, English couldn't have had a word for pangolin because the pangolin, which if you don't know, looks like a scaly anteater and is one of my favorite animals, is not native to England or any of its neighboring countries. However, in Doran's list of Malay loanwords in English, There was one word that stuck out to me because it wasn't a word for local food, flora, or fauna. That loanword was amok, 
Traditionally, someone who is amok, or more idiomatically, running amok, is in a wildly violent or murderously frenzied state. Violent rioters might be said to be running amok. Running amok also has a less violent and more colloquial sense. We might describe an out-of-control child or another variety of mayhem as running amok. Since the late 19th century, the American Psychiatric Association has officially recognized amok as a mental disorder. The psychiatric literature describes amok as a violent state motivated by rage or vengeance against a person or group, often associated with, quote, psychosis, personality disorder, bipolar disorder, and delusions, end quote. Why, then, amid its loan words for native food and animals, did English need to borrow from Malay a word for this alleged mental disorder? The story is complicated, and we'll get to that in just a second, but first, I'd like to take a moment and talk about the Malay language itself, since it's never come up in this podcast before, and likely won't come up again. Malay is spoken by roughly 280 million people around the globe, mostly in the countries of Indonesia, Malaysia, and Brunei. One might be inclined to call Malay Malaysian, but that's not right. Malaysian is the name of the standard form of Malay spoken in Malaysia. Indonesia also has its own form of standard Malay called, you guessed it, Indonesian. And although the two variants of the languages spoken in these countries are closely related, they differ in their vocabulary. Due to its colonial history, most modern Malaysian loanwords come from English. Indonesia has a different colonial history, so the bulk of modern Indonesian loanwords come from a mix of Dutch, Latin, and Javanese. Malay belongs to the Austronesian language family, whose other major languages include Javanese and Tagalog. Some linguists have estimated that there are over 1,200 smaller languages and dialects in the Austronesian language family, which would make it the second largest language family in terms of distinct languages, behind the Niger-Congo language family. Malay is generally written in the Roman alphabet, although an older Arabic-based script still has a presence in Brunei. That's just scratching the surface, but I think it's enough to get us oriented. With that, let's dive right in to the fascinating history of the word and the condition of amuk. The Malay form of the word amuk has essentially the same meaning as its English derivative. It describes a person in a furious state of attack or killing spree. It has cognates in other Austronesian languages, including Tagalog and Maori, where it shares a sense of attack. The Hobson-Jobson Dictionary suggests that this mutual ancestor may either derive from the native Austronesian word amar, meaning fight or war, or the Sanskrit word Amoksha, which roughly translates as that which cannot be loosened. The idiom to run amok is a direct translation of the Malay verb meng amok. The first attestation of amok in a Western language is in a 1516 Portuguese text called The Book of Duarte Barbosa, an account of the countries bordering the Indian Ocean and their inhabitants. This is historically coherent, since the Portuguese were among the first Europeans to explore and colonize Southeast Asia. 
Barbosa's text was a popular travel book in the early 16th century that got translated into other European languages. Thus, the first English reference to amuk, or rather amuko, which is an old variant of the word, is in a translation of Barbosa's text. It reads, quote, There are some of them who, if they fall ill of any severe illness, vow to God that if they remain in health, they will of their own accord seek another more honorable death for his service, and as soon as they get well, they take a dagger in their hands and go out into the streets and kill as many persons as they meet, both men, women, and children, in such wise that they go like mad dogs, killing until they are killed. These are called amuko. And as soon as the people see them begin this work, they cry out, saying, Amuko, Amuko, in order that people may take care of themselves, and they kill the Amuko with dagger and spear thrusts. End quote. Not the most eloquently translated passage, but basically it describes a person who, rather than dying helplessly at the hand of an illness, vows to go off on a killing spree and die as a result of people trying to stop his killing spree. In this description, Barbosa makes it sound like this is something that happens somewhat frequently. Frequently enough for there to be a word for it, and frequently enough for the local people to have protocol for dealing with what may seem to us like an unusual outbreak of violence. So should we trust this account? As you may well know, pre-modern European descriptions of indigenous peoples have a tendency to exoticize, demonize, and flat-out invent things about their encounters. In a past episode of this podcast, in which we looked at the etymology of cannibal, we explored Christopher Columbus's journals in which he describes encounters with ravenous flesh-eaters. These accounts were believed to be 100% true at the time of their publication, but their facticity in more recent years has been called into question. But as it turns out, Barbosa's description of amok on the Malay Peninsula is not just a fanciful invention of a single European imagination. In the late 19th century work The Hobson Jobson Dictionary, Henry Yule and A.C. Burnell list dozens of quotations and citations that document European encounters with amok in Southeast and South Asia. By the way, the full title of the Hobson Jobson Dictionary is Hobson Jobson, a glossary of colloquial Anglo-Indian words and phrases and of kindred terms etymological, historical, geographical, and discursive. And the text is exactly what its full title claims to be. In one Hobson Jobson citation of Amuk, a debtor who can't pay his debts runs Amuk in order to avoid becoming a slave and is killed amidst his rampage. In several general accounts, Amok is described as a form of spontaneous, unprompted violence. In another account, a man who has run amok is not killed, but instead subdued amidst his violence, and is later tried in court. In the wake of his killing spree, the amuko, that is, he who has run amok, claims to have had no idea what he was doing, as if possessed by a demon. The Western author of this particular quotation says that he has witnessed at least 20 such incidents of supposedly unconscious amok incited by South Asian natives. In another quotation, amok is described as a radical but honorable behavior demonstrated by some soldiers, an attitude in which an amuko is unafraid or even willing to die on behalf of his ruler or community. In 
these cases, revenge is often a motivating factor behind running amok. By the way, that phrase running amok was popularized in English by the famed explorer James Cook in one of his travelogues. According to Cook, quote, To run amok is to get drunk with opium, to sally forth from the house, kill the person or persons supposed to have injured the amok, and any other person that attempts to impede his passage. So in Cook's estimation, amok is connected with drug consumption and is a response to injury, whether physical, verbal, financial, etc. By the way, in virtually all of these attestations, the runners amok are men. So this is kind of a lot to take in and make sense of. The common thread among these descriptions, which, keep in mind, do come from the perspective of colonial Europeans, is a native Southeast Asian male who goes off on a killing spree. Yet the motivations of these killing sprees vary from account to account. The killing spree of a warrior seeking revenge on behalf of his lord seems categorically different from that of the sick man described by Barbosa, yet they are both described in the literature as amok. So this raises a few questions. Does the Malay verb meng amok, to run amok, describe a general killing spree or something specific? If it describes something specific, what is it? And is it something unique to pre-colonial Southeast Asian cultures? These questions kind of force me to go beyond my usual wheelhouse of linguistics and history, but I'm going to try to synthesize an answer for you, hopefully without going too far off the deep end. So what is the Malay perspective on running amok? According to traditional Malay beliefs, amok was caused by supernatural possession. The Hantu Belion was believed to be an evil tiger spirit that possessed human victims, causing them to lose their awareness and act murderously. Because the Hantu Belion was perceived as an uncontrollable force external to the individual, instances of amok were not perceived by Malay tribespeople as the fault of the perpetrator. When Western sociologists and anthropologists began studying amok in Southeast Asia in the 19th century, they came up with a different explanation for the phenomenon. They determined that amok was a culture-bound syndrome, identifying wounded honor or pride as the constant across all instances of amok. Let's unpack this a bit. A culture-bound syndrome is a mental disorder shaped by the unique culture of the individual afflicted by the syndrome. Culture-bound syndromes are not observed outside of those unique cultures and do not have causes observable by conventional medical fields. In other words, culture-bound syndromes, such as running amok, are not caused by things like a chemical imbalance or, say, a malfunctioning organ. They're caused by something else. And in the context of traditional Southeast Asian amok, that something else is widely accepted to be wounded honor or pride. Let's revisit those accounts that describe revenge-seeking warriors running amok on behalf of defeated or disgraced leaders. In a culture such as pre-colonial Southeast Asia, where honor was held in nearly sacred regard, it's easy to see how this form of amok might arise. By the way, I suspect that the so-called warrior's amok is the earliest form of amok, an inkling supported by the word's possible derivation from the Austronesian root amar, meaning war or fight. 
But how does this connect to seemingly unprovoked outbreaks of violence? Well, let's revisit just two other accounts of amok in the literature. First, a debtor runs amok in order to not become a slave and is then killed. Two, a sick man vows to run amok as soon as he has the strength to do so with the explicit intention of being killed in order to die an honorable death as opposed to dying helplessly in bed. I chose these two examples because the stakes actually seem quite clear. Both instances of amok are motivated by wounded honor. Again, in a culture that puts honor above all, it's perceived as more honorable to die fighting than to die bedridden or as a slave. By running amok, these individuals become feared, and thus their honor and dignity is restored. Now, there are also accounts of amok where the killing spree seems random. At first, this might seem to undermine the whole theory of wounded pride as the common thread, but consider this. All written accounts of amok known to the West were written by Westerners during an era of colonization, and if you belong to a society that values honor above everything else, and you're watching your village and people day by day getting exploited by foreign powers, random outbreaks of amok suddenly seem less random. With that said, it's now widely believed that amok in its original Southeast Asian context, was essentially a form of suicide. This is contrary, of course, to the traditional belief of supernatural possession, and it also suggests that those accounts that, you know, blame opium as the cause of amok are misguided. Opium was likely just a way of numbing the reality of death. Now, I don't want to give you the impression that Western scholars came up with this hypothesis all at once. Some early doctors studying amok thought that the tendency might be hereditary. Others thought that it might be an extreme symptom of malaria. Some merely wrote it off as a primitive behavior of an uncivilized culture. Though cases of amok have virtually vanished in the 20th century, recent scholars have revisited the original reports of amok, proposing that it's actually not a culture-bound syndrome unique to Southeast Asia at all. Suicide by cop and berserkers are two examples of amok-like behavior outside of Malaysia and Indonesia. Suicide by cop is when suicidal individuals deliberately instigate violence in order to provoke lethal retaliation from police officers, thus offloading their suicide to a third party. And berserkers are fighters in the Scandinavian corpus who, according to all accounts, fought their enemies in a furious trance-like state. So let's zoom out here. The word amok has remained consistent over time, but our understanding of what causes amok has not. Depending on who is describing amok and at what point in history they're describing it, factors such as spiritual beliefs, cultural background, medical discoveries, academic knowledge, colonialism, post-colonialism, etc., all come into play. Right, we're ending on a heavier note than usual, but hopefully you still enjoyed listening to the show. Again, if you want to support my research, you can make a monthly contribution at patreon.com. That'll also give you access to short monthly bonus episodes. If you have any questions or suggestions for me, email me at wordsforgranted at gmail.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at wordsforgranted for etymology of the day posts and other linguistic musings. Okay. 
I'll talk to you next time here at Words for Granted. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.